You're listening to Thank You Five, a podcast devoted to Omaha's vibrant performing arts scene. My name is Dana Schweiger, and I've worked in Omaha theater for over 25 years. I'm sitting down with directors, performers, musicians, technicians, and designers to discuss their artistic talent, their passion, and why they continue to call Omaha home. Kimberly Faith Hickman is beginning her fourth year as artistic director at the Omaha Community Playhouse. Prior to moving to Omaha, Kimberly was a New York City-based director and choreographer for eight years with theatrical credits that include Broadway, Off-Broadway, national tours, and regional theater productions across the country. On Broadway, Kimberly worked as an associate and or artistic director to Lynn Meadow, Pam McKinnon, and Susan Stroman on productions that earned 19 Tony Award nominations combined. She is a recipient of multiple directing fellowships from the Society of Stage Directors and Choreographers and Manhattan Theater Club, and is a member of Lincoln Center Directors Lab, Directors Lab West, and SDC, the Union for Professional Stage Directors and Choreographers. She is also a founding member of Bechtel Project, a nonprofit organization dedicated to telling stories that pass the Bechtel test. As an advocate for theater artists, Kimberly has served on selection committees for the Zelder Fitch Chandler Award, Princess Grace Playwriting Fellowship, SDC Foundation Observership, the Kilroy's List, Women's Project Playwrights Lab, and the Jewish Plays Project. Thus far, during her tenure as artistic director, Kimberly has continued OCP's hallmark of high standards for lavish stage productions while further expanding education and outreach by bringing new, diverse voices to all facets of OCP's programming. She founded the Henry Fonda Theater Academy, a theater education program teaching life skills through stage skills for youth and adults, and created the Omaha Community Playhouse Directing Fellowship, a professional training program for early and mid-career stage directors. As a director, she loves productions that represent all walks of life with potent honesty and humor. Kimberly Faith Hickman, welcome to the Green Room. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Uh, It's a beautiful, dreary July day, so I appreciate you traveling all the way out here for this. We'll start with where you are from originally, because you are not from Omaha. So where where did you where were you born? I was born in Columbus, Georgia, and raised in Phoenix City, Alabama. Okay, so I'm a Southern girl. You're a Southern girl. <laughs> and when did you move to Alabama? Pretty much immediately. Phoenix City and Columbus are are neighboring towns. Um, just a, a the Chattahoochee River separates them, and so um, my mom's family was from Columbus, and so that's where you go to be born at the hospital. And then, <laughs> uh, and then my family bought um, a house in Phoenix City, so I I moved to Phoenix City right away. Is where my dad's family lived. Do you still have family down in that area? They're all still there. I'm the only, I'm the only one that that left. Okay, <laughs> where'd you go to grade school? Uh, I went to Sherwood Elementary School. Did you do any of the class plays? Did they have that? I did. Yeah, we um, well, we called them I think programs back then. Like we didn't really do like scripted plays, but we would put on. Um, 
I guess what theater people now call devised work, but um, <laughs> the class would like put together their program and um, we all got to do, you know, what we wanted. And I was very much a solid chorus kid that would sing in the background because I had a very tiny voice. And so I was never the, the kid that was like up front and, you know, getting, wanting the attention. I was just very happy in the group. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, and then where did you go to high school? I went to Central High School in Phoenix City. Okay. Mm -hmm. Did you participate in any of the plays there? I did. Um, I was really active in our our drama department at the high school. I performed there. I did some assistant directing there pretty early on and just really got a taste for for all of it a little more ingrained in, in my psyche back then. And that was a lot of fun. How many kids in the school? Oh, gosh, I want to say... Probably around 300 kids. Okay. Yeah. I don't know if that's a big school or a small school. um. (laughs) Well, I went to an all-girls Catholic school. Oh, did you? And so we had like 60 people in our graduating class. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So in the grand scheme of things, I meant maybe middle. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So um, yeah, about 300 kids, ninth through 12th grade. Did you do any singing as well or like, you know, like Glee Club or anything like that? Or was it strictly theater? You know, it's strictly theater. We did not have a Glee Club at our school, which was kind of disappointing because I remember a group of us wanting that. And Mm -hmm. it just, you know, sports was very important at my high school. And so that really sort of took the the precedent for Mm -hmm. the after school clubs. But yeah, no Glee Club. So my singings happened at church choir. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. What year did you graduate, if you don't mind my asking, from 1997. high school? 1997. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I guess I do mind you asking. <laughs> but me asking because you're a youngin'. All right. So you graduated, so you graduated in 1997. Yeah. And then where did you go to college? I went to college at uh, Columbus State University in Columbus, Georgia. Mm-hmm. And was theater on your radar as a major at that point? Yes, I, ma- I majored in theater. I, I took a while to go to school. It... It took me about seven years to get through undergrad, just for various reasons. I It was important to me to have a job while I was in school, so I worked the whole time. Um, so I wasn't always a full-time student just because, you know, life and bills and <laughs> things happen. So I was always enrolled, but that's why it took so long for me to get through undergrad is I worked the whole time. Did you have a mentor in high school that kind of helped steer you toward theater? Or what was it about theater that made you decide, yeah, this is actually what I want to do and this is what I want to get my degree in? That didn't really happen until college, I think. You know, I chose majoring in theater because theater made me happy. Mm -hmm. I think my parents were slightly concerned about that. They were very supportive. But, you know, what makes you happy doesn't always just magically (laughs) pay for your life. And so... So it was a college teacher that I had. Her name was Hazel Hall Brennan. And Hazel really is the one that I would say mentored me through my college education. She was the chair of our department. She taught the directing classes and she was the first one to say, you know, you're you're really good at this. You should think about pursuing it. And if it weren't for her, I probably would have, you know, gone in some other direction eventually. But she was really great and supportive and helped me see something in myself that I knew it was there, but wasn't quite ready to embrace it. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What was it about the early thoughts on directing that made you want to steer toward that as opposed to, say, being a performer on stage? I know you had talked a little bit about, you know, wanting to be kind of in the back. Did yeah. that help? Was that like a big part of that? It really was. Performing, and I, I performed for a long time. I think the last show I was in was in 2009. Um, So I still did it, but it got to a point where I got such anxiety about it. 
it, you know, being in the background felt really good for me. And, and I would probably still be a solid chorus girl <laughs> if anyone ever needs one. But yeah, I love, I love telling stories and I love collaborating with people. And I don't like all of the attention being on me. And um, so directing is a really great place for me to dig into an entire script, to dig into a really big picture with lots of people. And I love being, you know, the directors are the captain of the ship, but you're you're not alone on the ship you know you're you're really working with so many villagers in the theater village and um and that was what was really the most appealing to me what shows did you direct when you were in college oh gosh I directed a bunch of one acts I haven't thought about this in a long time my senior thesis was a play called Marcus is Walking and it's by a woman named Joan Ackerman and it's a set of scenes they all take place in a car. And so uh, my set was a car. <laughs> and we did it on our main stage. And um, I incorporated projections as like our back wall, you know, that were really fun so that we could change out where the car was all the time. But directing a play where everyone's seated in a car is really challenging. And it's called Marcus is Walking because um, uh, one of the last scenes of Act One is a bunch of kids trick or treating, and the dad's taking them out, and the dad gets frustrated, and you know says like he's going to send his kid walking if he doesn't cooperate. <laughs> but it was a really fun play, and uh, I actually got to work with quite a few of my really or people that ended up becoming really really good friends of mine through my adulthood, and so that's a special project for me to think of. Yeah. So you would have graduated then? What about two thousand two thousand four? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Then what did you do immediately after graduation? I freelanced for a while. There's a theater in Columbus, Georgia that hired me pretty quickly after college uh, called the Springer Opera House, and they're a production uh, produ- producing house. And I freelanced for them as a choreographer and an actor and then eventually a director for several years. There's another theater there called the River Center for the Performing Arts, which is much like the Orpheum or the Holland. I worked in their box office. I worked in their marketing department. After a few years of working for both companies, the Springer took me on as a staff member, and I was there for four years. And that artistic director, Paul, was really supportive of me taking leaves of absence to go off and do other things. So I did that for a few years. The more freelance work I was getting, the less sense it made for me to try to be a staff member somewhere. And Paul was, like I said, very supportive of my growth and my journey. And so I left there after about four years of being a staff member and moved to New York. When you moved to New York, how did you get your foot in the door in New York? <laughs> and, I, yeah. and I suppose it was pro- it may have been a little bit easier for you because you had so much freelance on your resume Mm -hmm. that probably helped that helped quite a bit but still there has to be a way of did you have connections when you got there that that got you in touch with people off broadway or off 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 broadway (laughs) Mm -hmm. to get you closer to off broadway what was that journey yeah So while I was a staff member at the Springer, I applied for a summer internship at a theater called The Women's Project, and they're an off-Broadway company. They've been around since the 70s, and they're entirely devoted to work written by and produced by and directed by women. That's their sole mission. So I decided on a whim, because I found their mission so interesting, to apply for an internship. And I got an interview. And so I went to New York for a weekend, interviewed with a woman who was their associate artistic director at the time. Her name was Megan Carter. 
And Megan um, was from Louisiana. And so we talked a lot about being Southern girls <laughs> in theater. And um, yeah, yeah. And what her journey was. And and then she just decided to make me her intern. And so that was my first foot in the door, I would say. And that really led me to everything else. Megan introduced me to Pam McKinnon. I assistant directed uh, for Pam at the Women's Project before we went to the Broadway productions. Working for Pam got me into the door with Len Meadow and with Susan Stroman. A lot of these things were through fellowships that I formally applied for, but I certainly, you know, referenced, I've worked with this person and they really love your work and think I might be a great fit for you. And so that was really helpful. But yeah, Megan Carter's the one that really kicked it all off for me. So you just never know who you're going to meet and what random things you might have in common. So exactly. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about some of the shows that you did off Broadway mm-hmm. and then and then on Broadway. What were some of the highlights of things that you did in New York? Oh gosh, uh, the first Broadway show I worked on was certainly my favorite, probably, uh, or one of my favorites, which was um, called The Scottsboro Boys. And Susan Stroman directed and choreographed that, and that was the last musical that Candor and Ebb, who wrote Chicago and Cabaret, it's the last musical they wrote together. And that one was really special to me. It's another project I applied for on a whim. I saw a notice about it, and I thought, oh, God, you know, I really need to be a part of this because it's a true story about nine African-American young men who are accused of raping a white woman. And this is all a true story, and it happened in Scottsboro, Alabama. And since I'm from Alabama, I felt a real interest in this because I had never heard of it. I'd grown up in Alabama, never heard of the story, was really shocked and appalled the more I read about it. So when I applied, I I mentioned that in my application, and then I went and met with Susan, and she told me a lot of the background of how they created the project and, you know, what was I interested in learning, which was, you know, everything. (laughs) It's Susan Stroman. She's amazing. And that was probably, I want to say, my favorite just because it was my first, and that was really exciting. But it had such a personal meaning to me, you know, of being from a place where these horrible things happened. And you know, just the the knowledge that we don't talk enough about what we've done wrong as a city or a state or a country and and using theater to tell that story, I think is really important and powerful. And so that one resonates with me a lot. The first off-Broadway play I worked on with Pam McKinnon was a play called Smudge at Women's Project. And Smudge is about a woman who has a baby, the birth process does not go as planned and the baby becomes a special needs child and you don't hear what the diagnosis of the baby is but I thought the play was a really interesting one and looking at parenting is is hard enough as it is but then when you you have a child and and you get a diagnosis that you weren't expecting how you navigate through that as a parent and um, how that affects a marriage and and how that affects your interaction and bonding with the child and everyone handles it differently. And so I thought that script really explained parenthood and, and motherhood in a way I'd not seen on stage before. I just really liked how honest it was and, and it was funny. A woman named Rachel Axler wrote that play and she's gone on to, she write, uh, wrote on Veep yeah, on HBO, and um, she's just a really funny, brilliant playwright, and um, that was one of her first plays. So this, those two stand out to me the most, probably. And then you also worked on Clyburn Park. And I worked on Clyburn Park, yeah. That was really fun. Pam 
McKinnon was directing that and had directed it off-Broadway, which I was not a part of. She had an assistant through that theater company's um, fellowship program. And so when it was moving to Broadway, she reached out to me and said, would you be interested in working with me on this? And it's going to Los Angeles first and then going to Broadway. And I said, oh, my God, yeah. And um, so I did. And I, oh, gosh, I had a blast with that play just for a lot of reasons. The playwright, Bruce Norris, is a really great guy that I really enjoyed getting to know. I love his writing. It's very funny, but very biting. All of his scripts are that way. And that play also won the Tony for Best Play that year. So that was really fun to be a part of and to see what that atmosphere is like at that level. Did you go to the Tony Awards? I did, yeah. I've actually, it's funny, I've actually been to the Tonys three times. And uh, the first time I was a seat filler. Which was really funny because a friend of mine had a ticket to go and he was like, oh, you should go with me. And I said, well, I don't, I don't have a ticket. I'm not going to just buy a ticket at the Tony Awards. And, and he was like, well, you should look into this thing called seat filling. And I think I found out about it through Facebook. I can't remember. For those who don't know what seat filling is, yes, and I'm sure there might be some people might who, don't, okay. who don't know, So, because yeah. um, they do the same thing for the Oscars. Yes, but, yep. yes. Okay, so seat filling is when you're watching a televised award show, the audience looks full. It is appears to be full because they have a bunch of people that go and sit in empty seats so that when the camera spans across the crowd, they're filming a full theater. So anytime there is a commercial break and people have to get up to go to the bathroom, the people go to the bathroom, and then the stash of people in the back run down the aisles, get in the seats, and the whole time the the director of the televised ceremonies like over headset, like counting down the seconds you have to find a seat. And then when the person comes back from the bathroom, you get up and give them their seat, and you go to the back again. So I found out about this on Facebook, read about how to be a seat filler at the Tonys. You're supposed to have some letter that I didn't have. And so I went to Radio City Music Hall anyway. I was like, okay, I'm going to wing this. And so I got dressed up and I went down there and they were like, oh, do you have your letter? And I said, no, I lost it. And they were like, oh, that's okay. And so they just let me in. And um, Stalker. I know. And the whole time I'm, I'm texting my best friend. I was like, oh, my God, they let me in. He was like, cool. So... The first commercial break came, and someone, I don't know who, after the first, like, two awards were given out, went to the bathroom, I went in their seat, and they never came back. So I got to watch the Tony Awards from, like, the ninth row, (laughs) (laughs) surrounded by all these, like, people that I really look up to. and um, They didn't tap you out. They never tapped you out. No, they never tapped me out. And my best friend, who, like, spent money on a ticket, like, in the balcony of Radio City (laughs) Music Hall. It was really great. So, yeah, that's my fun Tony story. That's that's wonderful. But then the second two times you went, you actually went because of a production you were involved with? Yes, the second time was for Clybourne Park. And the third time was for a play called The Assembled Parties that I worked on at Manhattan Theater Club. It was nominated for several things. Let's talk a little bit then about the Bechtel Project. Yeah. So the Bechtel Project um, is a nonprofit that me and some friends of mine in New York started about four years ago now, four years ago. And we got together and we started talking about what theater companies have missions that we found to be really important. Uh, what kind of work did we want to see happening that wasn't happening? And we kept talking about companies who have a, a women-focused mission, and there are many of them, and, and they're fantastic. And, you know, that women's project was really important to me and definitely still my time there influences what I do now. 
so someone in the group, I can't remember who it was, brought up the Bechdel test. And for people that don't know the Bechdel test, the rules are two women in a scene together talking about anything besides a man. And so it's that simple. (laughs) Most entertainment does not pass that test. And so we decided to form a nonprofit and basically what we do is workshops across the country and these are still going on. I had to take a big step back with the artistic director job here, but I'm still involved to a certain to a certain extent. They do workshops around the country and basically they're writer workshops for people to create content that passes the Bechtel test. And it's been really interesting because a lot of the workshops we go to are at colleges or the KCACTF festivals. A lot of people don't stop to think about what they've been writing. And then when they're given the writer prompts or the exercises, it really makes them question, you know, what they thought they knew about female characters and female dialogue. And it's been a really, I think, fulfilling organization to be a part of because, you know, I don't think that culture and stories are going to change without people being out there trying to advocate for it and and challenge the the thought process of a writer a little bit. So it's been a really fun thing for us to be doing. Let's talk about your journey to Omaha. Yeah. It, you know, I had Marie Amther shoot on a while back and I, you know, I said, you know, most people who do theater or a lot of people who do theater in Omaha like to leave Omaha and go somewhere else to continue that journey. Very rarely do you have people outside of Omaha that want to come to the middle of the country (laughs) to do theater. Marie was one who wanted to because she was really enamored with the Great Plains Theater Mm -hmm. Conference. And then when she came in, she saw the theatrical community here. Mm -hmm. But for someone who has done work all over the country and done stuff in New York, who is not a Nebraska native, what propels you to decide to come to Nebraska? So I came out here in 2011. My best friend lived here and worked at the Playhouse. His name's Bo Bisson. And I came to visit Bo just because he moved to Omaha and I wanted to visit. And he was working at the Playhouse and he said, do you want to see a show while you're here? And I said, absolutely. And he said, do you want to see a Christmas carol or yesterday and today? Because I came in December. And I said, oh, yesterday and today, because I've I've seen a Christmas carol. I've been in a Christmas carol. I've choreographed Christmas carol. Everybody's been in a Christmas carol. I'm good with a Christmas carol. <laughs> Hilariously, here I am years later with a Christmas carol. But um, so, uh, so I went to see yesterday and today and liked the Beatles, you know, theoretically, but didn't know their catalog. And <clears throat> I'd heard about the show and it sounded really intriguing. So uh, yesterday and today was my first Playhouse show. And while I was here, I met with Carl and Susie. They were still on staff at that point, and we just had coffee and chatted. And then I kept in touch with them, and they would reach out to me and say, oh, we're thinking about doing this play. Would you be interested in coming direct? And I said, yes. And then it never quite worked out until a couple of years later. And so they asked me if I would direct Enron in Jesus Christ Superstar and if I would be interested in learning A Christmas Carol, the tour track. And I said, yes. And so I came out here to do Enron first. And that was really, that show holds a really special place in my heart because it's based on a true story, again, that a lot of people don't like to talk about (laughs) or, you know, 
or discuss. And so it was really interesting to talk to local people that have been affected by Enron and what happened. And there were some people that were really willing to meet with me and share their stories or do, you know, take me to lunch and talk about it. And, and that was really helpful in that process, because Enron is such a theatrical play. And it really explores finance in a very abstract creative fashion and um and I think it also boils down finance and the stock market and trade in a way that's easily understood because because you can see it and it's visual so that was my first show here and I had a blast I loved it I loved getting to know Omaha as a whole you know I saw some stuff with Blue Barn and the Rose that summer went camping swam in lakes (laughs) it was really fun 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 fact that I'll interject really quick yeah Enron happened right around the in the eighties, obviously, and uh, I I dated a guy whose whose dad worked for Enron. Really? I oh did. Oh my gosh! I did. Oh wow! And it it was kind of funny because he kind of like lavished me with. Well, I was in high school, lavished me with a lot of like you know he would show up at my school with like bouquets of roses oh, and, gosh. and all this stuff. But boy, when we broke up, it was you know. And then a couple of years later, the Enron thing happened. And I'm like, oh. I wonder what happened to Matt's dad. Oh, God. Yeah. <laughs> but I digress. But no, go ahead. So. Well, a, a friend of mine. <laughs> it was just funny because I remember when the Playhouse was doing it, I'm like, hmm, I wonder I wonder if his name's going to show up. It didn't. Right. But, yeah. Yeah. Oh, gosh. But yeah. still. It's, it's so interesting. And, yeah. and uh, there was a, a gentleman at the Playhouse, and I don't think I ever found out his name. I wonder if I, if I could. But after I left, you know, because when you freelance direct, you open the show and then you go away. They sent me a photo of a man who was a volunteer at the Playhouse who was ushering, and it worked for Enron, and he would wear his Enron t-shirt to usher. And I was like, that is so cool. I mean, I appreciate that he's, you know, volunteering his time to support the story, but also say, you know what, I was a part of this. It was a really interesting time for me, and, and just own that, you know. Mm-hmm. That was really cool. So I, lo- I loved getting that photo. And I also got... um. Someone brought me their Enron, like, tote bag. Mm. And I have it framed in my office, actually, at the Playhouse, just because it's such a such an interesting piece of history to have, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. So that was my first experience here in Omaha. And then I came back to work on the Christmas Carol tour. And for people who may not know, the Playhouse does a Christmas Carol main stage and tour. And while they are the same show, they're very different. <laughs> the tour cast is smaller. Um, some of the characters that are on the main stage are not in the tour. And so therefore, the blocking patterns are very different. So I learned just the tour for that year. And then I came back to do Jesus Christ Superstar, which was really fun. And I got to work with some really awesome people that had not been a part of Enron. So that was my first experience in Omaha. And then after that, Carl and Susie, we had kept in touch and they had retired. And then just over a couple of years, I was asked, you know, this position is available. Would you be interested in coming back? And I said, yes. So I flew out to interview with people and then got the job. So yeah, that's how, that's how it happened. Yeah, <laughs> Four years ago. Yeah. Well, and time seems to fly by that's already been, you know, starting starting year four. Yeah, starting year four. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you've done a lot of wonderful things, not only directing-wise, but also with some of the programs that you've started. So which one do you want to speak about first, the Directing Fellowship or the Henry Fonda Theater Academy? I'll talk about the Theater Academy first. So I've always been a big 
champion of theater education and the theater I worked at in Georgia, the Springer Opera House has a really great academy program that I taught in for a few years off and on. And the founder of that academy was a really dear friend of mine and mentor over the years. And he passed away just a couple of years ago. His name was Ron and Ron Ron knew how to work with young people in a way that I'd never seen before and and still haven't seen before. He just knows how to to talk to a young person in a way that makes them feel safe and empowered and brave. And, you know, it's something I I strive to do all the time. And I feel like Ron is always, you know, in my ear (laughs) guiding me with with working with young people. And so his theater program was a really different I think style of mission and that was a mission that we also ended up adopting which is life skills through stage skills so it's not about making these kids broadway stars if that happens that's great but if it doesn't that's great too and so letting the kids have an environment where they feel like they're working on themselves and becoming the best version of themselves is the ultimate goal and using what you learn in an acting class or a shop class or any theater class and just applying it to your life. So if you want to go work for First National, what you learned in improv <laughs> is going to apply to what you do at First National. So that that idea was really important to me to bring here. And um, OCP's had a really robust education program, and I wanted to see it grow, and I wanted to see have a really specific intention. And since we also offer adult classes, which a lot of theater programs don't, I thought it would also be the best mission to apply to adults, because most adults in Omaha have already decided decided I'm not going to be a Broadway actor, (laughs) you know? And so having a mission that I think is applicable to all ages was really important and the development of each individual was really important. And it's going to apply to anything that they do in life. So we, we have this mission. I was looking for an academy director. We interviewed several people. Mackenzie Damer came in and interviewed and her application was beautiful and she had this essay that she'd written that was just like about teaching philosophies and it was so aligned with how I feel about life skills or stage skills and I I still tease her because (laughs) she she came in with this like lovely portfolio and she was like I brought this I don't know if it's necessary but here it is and and I read it and I was like oh my god yes you know and she was the only one that brought the portfolio in but I'm so glad she did because it just told me everything I needed to know and so she's been with us for a couple of years now and has grown the program even more. We just offered a cabaret camp for the first time this summer. And so we had a bunch of 12-year-olds and up in the building learning how to be cabaret performers. And they put on their show last Friday. And so that was really fun. She's also expanded our offerings to a lot of off-site locations. So we've done residencies with Girls Inc. and Completely Kids and 75 North. And it's been really great for us to get OCP out of our own building. I think it's easy when you have a building to stay in your bubble, but McKinsey's very on board with getting out of the bubble and taking our, our mission to outside of, you know, 69th and Cass. So mm-hmm. that's been really awesome. I'm going to divert for a second then based off of something that you said, mm-hmm. which is getting outside of the bubble. Mm-hmm. One of the things that the Playhouse has done what, the last couple of years, I think, at least this year for sure, but probably, it was probably earlier than that, is one of the things that I like that you have implemented, which is going outside of 69th and Cass to hold your auditions. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
Why do you feel it's important to hold auditions outside of 69th and Cass? I think some people find our location hard to get to. I think some people find the playhouse intimidating. The perception with some people in Omaha is that the Playhouse is, I'll I'll just go ahead and say the Playhouse is for white people. That's what I've been told many, many times. And that's been a really interesting conversation to have because in my brain, it's not a place for white people. But as a white woman who's lived a very privileged life, you know, I have to think outside of my own bubble to understand how the Playhouse can seem intimidating, how it might seem unwelcoming. And the only way I can find that out is by having conversations with people. And so I'm really thankful to the people that have been very open about their perception or their experiences, whether they be positive or negative. So having auditions off-site, and it's not a perfect system. We're still definitely refining it for this year. It's let us be more accessible to people that may look at us and look at the Playhouse and say, oh, you want us to come to you. Why aren't you coming to us? You know, again, I don't think it's a, I don't have a perfect answer for any of it, but Mm -hmm. I'd rather try to figure it out than just sit back and go, well, they just need to show up, you know, Mm -hmm. because I just, Mm -hmm. I don't think that's a good enough answer. And so, so we had auditions with Girls Inc. in North Omaha a couple of times, and they were a really wonderful facility. The staff is great to work with. They've, like I said, Henry Fonda Theater Academy's done some educational satellite programming with them. And it just really lets us be more present in the community mm-hmm. because our the title of our theater is Omaha Community Playhouse, and it lets us be more members of the community by being in the community rather than expecting the community to always come to 69th and Cass, if that makes sense. It does. <laughs> no, it does. It, to- it totally makes sense. And it goes along with, I think you had mentioned a couple of weeks ago at the at the awards night at the Playhouse that this year was, uh, this past the uh, theatrical season was important uh, from a historical sense because mm-hmm. each production was completely diverse. Correct. Mm-hmm. You see that as well, not only with with how you cast your shows, but also the show, the types of shows that you pick. So you can tell that that's very important to the Playhouse to keep those conversations open. I, I, I think it has to be. I mean, I know they're not they're not always fun conversations to have sometimes for people, but I think if we're not really looking in the mirror, we're doing a disservice to ourselves, to the community as a whole. And I think it's important just for the art form to feel accessible by all people. I mean, theater as an art form can often be seen as a white art form, you know, and I think changing that perception and just being more inclusive is is really important. And again, I don't have all the answers and I know I'm not perfect, but I'd rather try and keep trying and, and keep trying and well, see what we can do. You and know? I think that's just growing pains throughout the country. Though. Yeah, yeah. I think what the conversations that we have in the theatrical community mirror a lot of times the national conversation. Yes, yes. And it's something that's not going to be solved overnight you know, or by, you know, one season of shows. It's something that you have to continually be diligent on and and be self-aware 
moving forward. Right, exactly. I mean, you know, the Playhouse has been doing great work for 94 years, but it took 94 years to get a 100% diverse season. And so I certainly, we can't go backwards. We just can't. You know, we have to keep going forward. And I'm really proud that we achieved that. We have a diversity committee on our staff, actually, that meets and talks pretty regularly about all of these things. And offsite auditions was certainly something we discuss a lot and what are locations around Omaha we can go to. So the staff is very supportive and bought into making OCP a place for everybody, which is really important. Well, it'll continue to show why you are the biggest and best community theater in the United States. (laughs) So let's talk about the directing fellowship. Yeah, you were before, obviously, before you came here and before you just before you set up the directing fellowship at the Playhouse. You obviously had a lot of tools to look back on with all the fellowships that you were involved in. So I am going on the assumption that you have structured the the directing fellowship here based off of fellowships that you yourself participated in in the past. Yes. So talk to me about the directing fellowship at the Playhouse, if you would, please. Yeah, so one of the things that one of the things I noticed as I was spending more time here was sort of the lack of opportunity to direct in Omaha because you know the same people direct a lot of the shows and that's that's the case anywhere, you know. But the only way you can get directing experiences to get directing experience. <laughs> and and I remember, you know, when I was when I was applying to all these programs myself and applying to direct at just, you know, theaters that I had relationships with, um, sometimes I would be told, Oh, you need a little more experience before you can tackle this production on this stage. And, you know, I remember getting so frustrated because I thought, well, I'm not gonna get the experience if I don't get the experience, you know? Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. And so also because I didn't go to grad school, these fellowships were, I mean, that was my, essentially like my master's degree, you know, working with these amazing people in a hands-on way. And so I started thinking more about that and wanting to expand the directing pool here in Omaha, provide more opportunities, because I think also expanding the directing pool showcases more of the voices that we have here because directing is certainly a voice in the room and in a season. We program so much diverse material that having a diverse pool of people to select from I think is really important. And so I decided to, I decided to start this program so that we could have people learning more about directing in the room. So we have an assistant director capacity to the program. And then with our alternative programming series, we have stage reading directing opportunities. So there, because there are nine slots in our season to assistant direct and usually less than nine slots of all programming, not everyone gets to do two things just because of math <laughs> but <laughs> but um but in most cases you're directing an alt programming reading and assistant directing an OCP show so it lets people have two different experiences one is just you know an opportunity to direct and cast and audition and analyze the script and then put it up in front of people, but then to get more involved in the production elements. You know, um, assistant directors can come to design meetings if they want to. They can go to all the auditions and callbacks if they want to. We keep, I think it's important 
to keep the assistant directing relationship really between the assistant and the director. I only will step in if I need to, but there's no curriculum to this fellowship other than the hands-on experience. In my experience of participating in these a few years ago, my relationship with those directors was the most important one. There were people in charge of these programs, but they didn't oversee us unless, you know, there was some kind of issue. But rarely there is if you're communicating up front and, you know, laying out expectations and working well together. So so that's what they're modeled after. So it's a really good way, I think, for people to get that practical experience even if they just want to watch, you know, if they don't want to vocalize in the room, that's okay. If their director doesn't want them to vocalize in the room and wants to set up some other system of communicating, that's fine too. I think it's a really good exercise just in, you know, looking at a big picture, getting the hands-on experience, but also communicating. Communicating styles are so different. And when you're working with a director as an assistant, you you learn a lot more about communicating between each other, but also with the cast. And it's just a really great learning tool, I think. And also a way for us to have more voices in the Omaha area as storytellers and directing. Last year, the first move we had from assistant directing to directing was Caitlin McClency. She assistant directed me with me for the Curious Incident of the Dog in the Nighttime. And then when Rocky Horror became a part of our season and I knew what Caitlin's affinity for horror and camp (laughs) and things like that were, I was like, okay, I think you'll be perfect for this if you want to do it. So, and it's also a good opportunity for people to get experience in things that they have no experience in. You know, Caitlin is so drawn to comedy and um, as an actress she's done a lot of drama and so I, th- I thought Curious Incident would be a really good fit for her and challenge her in some ways but then we had an assistant director last year who had only done comedies in his life and wanted a drama so we gave him of my some men so it's a nice way for people just to experience something different too. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What is your directing style like when you sit down to direct a show? And I don't know if you have a certain way that you approach directing a musical as opposed to directing a straight play, but what, what is, if somebody were to sit down and go, oh, that's a Kimberly Faith Hickman production, I can tell that without even opening my program because there are these elements that she employs or her fingerprint is, is on this mm, production. That's a great question. I think, well... If you were just watching a show, if there are actors in the aisles, that's always me. <laughs> because <laughs> I always do that. I try to make Is a, that just a here thing? Or did you do that? I other did places? that everywhere. Did yeah. That everywhere. Yeah. I I love I like doing it too. I was just curious. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if I'm able to, I'll mm-hmm. I'll do it. It just kind of brings the people in touch more with the audience more in touch. It feels more immersive. It does. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Without, you know, without scaring people you know because mm-hmm. I understand like interactive theater isn't always people seeing because some people you just want to come you want to sit you want to watch an actor talking to you or asking you to give them lines may not be your thing yeah I would say that immersive sense is a, definitely a stamp of mine I think there's one show is there one show I've not done it in I don't know I think I've done it in every show here Nope, that's not true. I didn't in Curious Incident. That's the one that mm. I've not done it in. <laughs> but um, 
Yeah, it's funny because in production meetings when we're having set design discussions and Jim is my usually my set and lighting designer, I'll say, well, you can plan on these lights being used <laughs> because I'm probably going to have people in the audience. For me, theater, you know, and I go back to like being little and seeing shows, I loved feeling a part of it. And so creating some sort of environment where the audience can feel like they're a part of it and it's not so removed, I think is important. Um, and I'm always trying to find ways to, to do that. So that's one thing. I approach plays and musicals exactly the same way. In my brain, lyrics are just, it's dialogue set to a beat and set to a range that someone has provided for you. So I don't really approach them any differently other than just knowing there's music <laughs> accompanying it. I love shows that have history to them. So I'm often or some sort of, you know, historical background or in the case of ragtime, historical fiction, I guess. So usually I end up directing a lot of those. So like Enron is a a great example of that. And then usually always the shows with young people are the ones that I always end up doing at the Playhouse specifically. I love working with our youth actors. It's so much fun. And like I said, I always feel like I have my friend Ron like coaching me through how to how to handle a difficult moment. But ultimately, I think it's it's setting the playhouse up for its future, which I think is really a really important investment in the Omaha kids and them wanting to be on stage and their family supporting us. So I haven't I haven't been ready to hand that over to anyone <laughs> to anyone else because <laughs> um, it's it's important. It's important job, sure. you know. So sure. um, I love doing that. So those are some of the ways. But yeah, it's funny because in the way we pick a season, you know, we pick such a diverse group and I know I'm not the right person for every show. I'm supposed to direct three shows a year plus a Christmas Carol. That's like a part of my contract. So I always start picking which ones I think I'm the right fit for or in some cases looking at what I'm not the right fit for and and, mm-hmm. and going to those other people. But I feel like the ones that I always fall back to are the big family shows or the shows that are rooted in some sort of history and truth, ways that we can explore, I think, real human issues in a theatrical way are the scripts that I always am drawn to. I, I have to ask, when you held... Your musical, well, I guess we'll do this because when you have your, now that the Playhouse has their, for lack of a term, better term, cattle call auditions Mm -hmm. for For the the musicals musicals. Mm -hmm. for the season. So when you you put something like Annie Mm -hmm. on your season... Do you really make it a requirement to say, please don't sing anything from Annie when you come here? No, we don't actually. Because <laughs> I know a lot yeah. of people do it. It's like, oh my God, here's like the 20,000th version of, you know, Tomorrow or Hard Knock yeah. Life or something. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah. No, we don't. And it's funny you say that. The song of the auditions this year was, I think it's called Never Enough from The Greatest Showman. Okay. I've not seen The Greatest Showman, but... um there is one song that I think it's called Never Enough that the kids kept singing. And I was like, it's a beautiful song. But having not seen the movie, I was like, where is this from? And someone right. told me. And so, yeah, it's funny to see what the, the song trend with the kids is. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. When we did Beauty and the Beast, it was How Far I'll Go from Moana. Oh. Like that was the one we got a lot of that, okay. that year. So, yeah. But no, we don't. We don't tell them what not to sing. And it's fine. I mean, honestly, oh, sure. I think sure. the only time I've put parameters out there was when we did Rock of Ages, I said, you know, please sing a, a rock 
a sure. pop rock song or a pop rock ballad sure. or, you know, something like that. But. Well, yeah, because you have to make sure you have the stamina for that. Right. Well, yeah. and, you know, and that was the interesting thing, talking with John Gibalisco about that show, that he said, you know, what a great show Rock of Ages was. But as much as it felt like a rock concert at the same time, he's like, you have to remember, it's a musical theater it piece. It is. Which yeah. is, you know, which was really interesting. Like, yeah, yeah, it is. Yeah, yeah. It is. What is it like, and I know there's more than one person, I believe, that helps uh, direct A Christmas Carol, but how how do you tackle that every year? It's Obviously, it's the biggest show that the Playhouse does mm-hmm. every year. It probably is, has its own formula in a way, but mm-hmm. there has to be a way to tackle that every year to give it the same great production qualities every year. So as a director... How how do you tackle that? And especially like for when you first stepped into it, you had a little bit with the tour. Right. But then eventually you moved over, you know, to the main stage. Right. Which you said was completely different. different. So mm-hmm. how did all of that get navigated? What was really helpful was my my background in assistant or associate directing really came in handy with this. So with the tour the the show well both productions are broken into different tracks so there is a ghost scrooge track that's the track i'm on then there is a party track which are fred millie party fezziwig party michelle garrity choreographs the show so that's her track and then i come in because scrooge is in those scenes i come in and and work with her on those and then there's a cratchit track that is a bland Roblin. And so we each have our own track. And then there are some little scenes like Belle and Young Scrooge or Crow and Dilber that we take a look at and see, okay, who shadowed this with Carl and Susie X years ago? Who remembers this? And um, and so we will split them up that way too. So we each have our own track. The schedule for the tour, we rehearse from nine to six for only about two weeks. It's very fast moving. Um, we ask the actors to come in off book. It's important in both productions that we cast a number of people that have already done it with a handful of people who are new in a rehearsal environment that's, you know, seven, eight hours a day in two weeks. Having alumni is really helpful because especially in those party scenes, if, you know, they'll just zip their partner around the room and and those choreography (laughs) lessons because they know what it is. And so that's, that's really helpful to have a base of people that have been invested and have done the show for a few years. How many people, I'm going to interrupt you for a moment, excuse me, how Mm -hmm. many people go out on tour? 23. Okay. Yeah, 23. 23 in the cast. Um, right. There are several right. crew positions. Sure. And, yeah. Sure. But 23 in the cast. 23 in the cast. Okay. As opposed, oh God, the main stage can get as huge as I did 48 one year, which was probably too many, <laughs> too many, but I did it. So yeah, it, it, the formula for main stage is a little different because we rehearse over about two months in the evenings. And um, so we do Monday through Friday evenings and then Sunday afternoons. And that formula is broken up in a different way where each show gets, or each scene gets a blocking rehearsal, a review time, then another review time, and then we start putting it all together. So it's it's very quick. And again, it helps when there are people who have done it before. And it's also important because Christmas Carol is so time consuming. The run, you know, we do more performances of A Christmas Carol than any other production. It's the holidays. So this really does become people's Christmas. Mm-hmm. If people are willing to give of their time in that way to us and want to come back year after year, you know, 
that's amazing. They show up to the auditions and say, I want to do this again. They sing their song, they do their dance. And I'm like, okay, cool. You want to come back? That's great. So it's, it's a really interesting process. And Carl and Susie left us their, what I'll say, directing Bibles. So I have a lot of notes from Carl that he took over the years, a lot of notes from Susie that she took. Michelle had created choreography charts a few years ago that shows where everything needs to be. My favorite thing, though, of the Bible is Carl Beck gave me his handwritten drawings of the street scenes, which are when everyone is on stage at the beginning and end of the show. It's so fun to look at, and I I just use, I've uh, choreographed, I Xeroxed a bunch of copies of the original that he gave me. And then every year I just erase the previous cast names and I rewrite the new ones. And that's literally my map of how to get people from A to Z in, you know, a two-day rehearsal period. Mm -hmm. And so um, they left us really good documentation for us to use. But it's nice, too, because, you know, it is a Christmas carol. People have an expectation that I think we need to deliver. But Abland and I also, there are little things because, you know, we're not Carl and Susie and our our style is a little different that we do leave sort of our own marks on the material with the actors and let the actors contribute their marks to it while staying on the railroad tracks mm-hmm. that Carl and Susie and, and ultimately Charles Jones, because it was his show that we're still doing. Charles has a son, Jeffrey, that I keep in touch with. And anytime I want to do anything different or try something new, I'll go to lunch with Jeffrey and, or shoot him an email and say, hey, I'm thinking of this, you know, is this cool? And and he always says yes, which is really great. And he's been a really good collaborative partner and person to go to when I have a question. What do you see the vision of the Playhouse moving forward? That's a really great question. We talk about it a lot, (laughs) especially since we're going towards year 100. And that's, you know, coming around the corner when you think about it. I definitely want to continue being a diverse space, an accessible space. I want us to be more entrenched into the community. I would love, you know, we were talking the other day about exploring offsite productions somehow, you know, that's challenging because our our runs are so long too. So where can we, what space can we occupy for four to five weeks? But really just continuing to push the envelope of of making the Playhouse a welcoming space. But also by doing that, I think we need to go out more. So that's one thing that we talk a lot about for the Playhouse. There's a lot of discussion in the acting community about volunteerism. And And a lot of people have varying opinions on that. And so that's a continued discussion that I think we're going to be really involved in over the next few years, furthering our educational programming. In addition to the academy, we have an apprenticeship program, which is for people that want to get into technical theater. We're looking at ways to expand that. So really just advocating, I think, for for the Playhouse to be, as I said, diverse and accessible. But I think it's really important that we advocate for artists in town. And, you know, I feel like part of my job is to find ways to give local people opportunities. National theater artists are great. I know plenty of them. But I also think it's important that we, the talent we have here is seen and utilized and showcased. You know, thinking about people that have been on your podcast, someone like Tim Vallier, who's a wonderful composer and just a wonderful human being and collaborator, and he's so talented. But finding people like that who have these gifts that people may not know about, I think it's really important that we utilize them and and advocate for them. 
you know, we're doing once this season, which I think is a unique opportunity for us because so rarely do we have actor orchestras. At the auditions, people were bringing in their instruments and playing them as a part of their audition. And just, again, like finding ways to showcase the talent here, I think is so important. So those are those are some of the things that we, we talk a lot about. And then I have big dreams that I can't say. <laughs> Would you say if I plied you with liquor? <laughs> I'm a steel trap. <laughs> yeah. That's good. That's yeah. good. Yeah. All right. I'm going to ask you some questions. Sure. What's your favorite color? Pink. Pink? I know. I'm such Ooh. a girl. <laughs> no. That's a new one. That's a new one. I like that. If you could, let's say, for some reason, Donald Trump decided to shut down Omaha tomorrow. It could happen. If you could take the playhouse and pick it up and move it somewhere else. If you couldn't live in Omaha anymore, where would you like to live? Oh, gosh, interesting. I would like to go, I can think of two cities. I've never been to either one. So I may, in reality, hate living there. But um, Portland, Mm. Oregon, Mm -hmm. or Boston. Never been there. They've always appealed to me. If theater wasn't your calling, what would be your second calling? Something in the medical industry. Mm. I, I have a fascination with medicine. I have a weird fascination with... <laughs> we, we just did our CPR training a few months ago, and we did a Stop the Bleed class. And so our facilitator brought in all these like fake limbs and tourniquets and like body parts that look like they've been shot and all these things and I just had the best time like packing (laughs) wounds and putting on tourniquets and yes so something in the medical industry would would definitely be my second calling what's your favorite type of music you like to listen to oh gosh I listen to everything but my favorite's probably (laughs) hip-hop okay who's your favorite hip-hop artist not that I would know any of them because I don't listen to hip hop. Probably I don't, I just Outcast. Don't. I okay. love Outcast. I'll have to listen. Yeah, Outcast. I I love Outcast, but um, I mean, there's a there's a lot to love out there. So, but yeah. I'm gonna go with Outcast. Okay. <laughs> if you could have lunch with anyone, living or deceased, who would you love to have lunch with? Ooh, probably Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I think she. I watched her documentary and she was fascinating. And she still works out, which is fascinating to me. But I just think she would have, she's such a quiet person, but she, when she has something to say, it's very important. And she's someone whose brain I would just love to to pick or just watch. Yeah. If you could go back in time and meet someone in history, who would you like to go back and meet and have a conversation with? Mm. Gosh, that's a really good question. Laura Ingalls Wilder. Mm. I was a big Little House fan. And as I, I just read two autobiographies from actors that were on Little House on the Prairie. And it was really fun for me to read those because I was really revisiting my childhood memories from watching that show as I was reading these books. I think her. I think, yeah, I mean, I think for that time period, you know, it was certainly so different. And, and I think for women of that time... Like what, what a what a society to live in, you know? And for her to be forging her path the way that she did, so yeah, she's someone that I would love to to go back and meet, and then like play on a farm with. 
Go mud wrestling. <laughs> do you have a Do you have a show that you would want to direct that's on your bucket list that you haven't directed yet? Oh gosh, I definitely want to do the Scottsboro Boys. It would be great. Any the Scottsboro Boys, Climber Park, any of those that I worked on would be so awesome to go back and revisit. I also really love Natasha Pierre and the Great Common of 1812. I saw that on Broadway last year or two years ago. It was very immersively staged, and I was just so dazzled by everything, the lighting, the choreography, just all of it was just so cool. They had re-renovated the theater to do that production, and so there were runways from the stage into the audience, and when the actors were walking through Russia, they had these runways where you never had to actually leave the theater. You could walk from the stage up this like ramp up to the balcony and walk across the balcony and come down and oh god I just thought it was so brilliant and and different and so that show for sure what's your favorite swear word Mm. (laughs) oh I have one oh wow I hope no children listen to this do you beep it you don't beep it I can can I spell it you can (laughs) (laughs) you can you can spell it okay it's the c word Oh, <laughs> there you go. I'll just say that. There we go. I like it. It elicits such a strong response from people. Yeah. Um, I don't use it that often, and, sure. but anytime I hear it, it really makes me laugh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so that would be yeah. it. There you go. One thing I noticed, this is the director of me coming out, when he read the bio, he said Henry Ford Theater Academy. Oh my God, did yeah, I really? Yeah, Henry Fonda, yeah. Henry Ford Henry Theater. Ford, yeah. I did want to mention that before I forgot. <laughs> I didn't want to stop you while you were in no, your flow. So. That's I was like, I'll tell her later. Henry Ford. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Henry Fonda Theater Academy. (laughs) We'll correct it in post. Yeah. That's so funny. (laughs) Thank you for listening to the Thank You Five podcast with original theme music by Tim Vallier. For more information about tonight's guest, please visit www.thankyou5pod.com. Be sure to head over to iTunes or Google Play to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. And remember that right now, somewhere in the world, a stage manager is saying, five minutes to curtain. Thank you, five. 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 five. That's theater talk. 